As a pastor, it has been a privilege of mine to participate in premarital counseling for a number of couples. And it's always interesting and always a pleasure to hear their stories. You know, how they, how they met and how they fell in love and how they knew they wanted to get married. And then you talk to them and their expectations of marriage. And, and it's just so fun to hear them because it's, so, it's just so simple. Like you're talking to them and it's just so, so simple in what they're saying to you. And you realize they are also terribly ignorant. Terribly ignorant of what it means to be married. They have no concept. And no matter how much you talk to them, you just can't take your brain and put it into their mind. They just have to experience it themselves. And without fail, when I get to the topic of submission, there's problems in the premarital counseling. I think of one in particular when I had uh, recently... Uh, the young lady, when I mentioned it to her, she was visibly upset about everything that I was saying to her. Like just, if she could get out of that room, she would have been out of that room, just shaking her head, <sighs> frustrated over the whole thing. I'm sitting there going, what? I, there was a litany of things that came out of her mouth. Well, what? what and it, all these different things that she could say that would somehow get rid of this burden that she had to bear called submission. And as I said, she's not alone in this. She wasn't alone in this. But here's the question I have to ask is, what would you say to her? What would you say to her? What counsel would you give her? Why is this topic so difficult? We believe God has given us truth. God has given us truth. And here's the problem. If we're not speaking this truth into them, the world will gladly give them an answer. Gladly give them an answer. And I'll be honest, submission is clearly under attack. Most people see it as repulsive. And I know part of it is because men, husbands, have abused and been evil in leadership. You can see that all over the world. It is not outside of our own country. We see it continually. And I need to say right now that we as Christians should be and need to be absolutely against violence, verbal abuse of girls, women in all forms, domestic abuse, sex trafficking, exploitation of pornography, anything, anything listen, that devalues the worth and dignity of girls and women, we are against. Absolutely, that is evil. That is terrible. We're against that. But the problem is, even though we stand true on that with the world, there are different factors. It's not just what you stand against. It's also why you stand against it and how you stand against it. If you were to ask the world why they stand against oppression of women... There would be different answers that we would have because we have a philosophical framework that has God in the center of it. We have a a worldview of men and women created in the image of God that the world does not have. And so our why is different from the world, although our what we totally agree on. And here's the problem in our culture today is our culture also emphasizes or overemphasizes gender equality. So the question would be, How would you bring about gender equality? We both agree on the what. We don't agree on the why. But what does the how look like? 
Well, the how, it would be, how would you bring about gender equality? End the oppression of women. What do you mean by that? I think they would say something along the lines of, whatever a man is able to do, a woman should also be able to do equally without restrictions. Because anything less than that is oppression. If a man has any position of authority, a woman should also be able to hold an equal position of authority as a man. Equal. If not, it's oppression. But here's the question we have to ask. Is that true and is that the solution? We can agree in part, but I'm afraid we cannot agree in the whole. We can agree in what, but we don't necessarily agree in why and how. We do not disagree on equality. Let me say that very clearly. Do not disagree on equality. But the question I have to ask is, does equality of personhood and equality of worth demand that you have the same responsibilities or even able to access the same responsibilities? Or are there differences of responsibilities that man has because he is man and that woman has because she is woman? In other words, are there different roles for a man and a woman? And if so, where do they come from? You can see why this is very important. And let me tell you something that Christians don't even agree on this one. Christians do not agree on this point itself. Egalitarians would hold to this statement by the Christians for Biblical Equality. They say the Bible teaches that the rulership of Adam over Eve resulted from the fall and was therefore not a part of the original created order. The Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood would say Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. See the difference? One, it came because of the curse and the fall. One, no, it existed before the curse and the fall. So here's the question we're going to look at really quickly. Is there evidence of roles for man and woman from creation? Is there? And I feel we have to look at this before we go anywhere else because we have to see what God designed. Okay, So Genesis 1 is very clear that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then it says, male and female, he created them. Both in the image of God. Both after his likeness. And then it says in verse 28, and he blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So both are image of God. Both have dominion to subdue and also fill the earth. And both are blessed by God. So there's the answer. We're equal. Totally equal. Here's the problem. That's only Genesis 1. Thankfully, we also have Genesis 2. Genesis 2. It's like a microscope into the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1. It slows down, takes a, takes a look, and says, okay, now what happened in this day? And what we see in Genesis 2 are a couple unique things. First of all, it says Adam was made first. Now, to any Jew reading that text saying Adam was made first, the idea of firstborn is very important. It set him apart from others, not unequal or better, just apart from others. One of the questions that one could ask is, why did God God not make them at the same time? If he wanted them exactly the same, he would have made them exactly the same time. He doesn't. 
what we see is that Adam, before Eve is created, Adam is given the moral order in the garden. He is told what to do and not do in the garden. Eve does not have that command. You see that Adam, when he is brought, or when she is brought to him, he looks at her and he names her woman. Names her woman. And then later on, after the curse, he names her Eve. Both of that is significant to show the authority of the man, not the betterment of the man, but the naming of something is you are mine. God calls things in Genesis 1 constantly. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. He calls the dry land earth. Calls the sky heavens. He call, it's the same word of Adam calling Eve. And if you know the story, God brings to him all of the animals. Now clarify, he's not saying that Eve is simply like an animal that Adam named. He's showing Adam that none of these are for you, Adam. None of them. I am going to make a helper fit for you. The woman was made specifically for the man. Made specifically for him. In fact, Paul uses that same argument in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, the woman was made for the man, not man for the woman. That's what he says. It's not saying that there's an inferiority. You are absolutely necessary. And Adam recognizes that and says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of me and she is made for me is the very essence of what he's saying. She's mine. You see, I believe God made man and woman absolutely equal, yet different from their very creation. And I believe Genesis 1 and 2, and even into 3 as we'll look at it, shows that man was created as the leader and woman was made as a helper for him. Now let me clarify, that's not chauvinism. That is creationism. I'm not puffing up men here. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And it's interesting also to note, as you move into Genesis 3, the fall came because of a rejection of God's design and authority. Think of the serpent. The serpent has already been unsubmissive in his created design. He was to be under God and submissive. He chose to rebel against that and try to usurp God's authority. Who does he go to first in the garden? He goes to the one in the submissive role and attacks her. Goes after her. It was interesting to me, I was reading an egalitarian post, and they said, well, it's very clear that the serpent didn't know which one was the leader, because if the serpent did know which one was the leader, he would have gone to the leader. Do you see how that makes absolutely no sense in terms of the deception? If you knew it was the leader, you would actually go to the one who's not the leader. You would go to the one who would take it for themselves. And that's what you see in the text. Eve sins, gives it to Adam. He sins. Yet God in the garden, who does he go to? We all know he goes to the man. He holds the man responsible for the sin, not Eve. Romans even uses that to show that we have all died because of, it says, one man's sin. In Adam, not in Eve, came the sin 
to everyone. In him, headship of humanity was in Adam. But here's the question, how did it change? Well, the curse, if you read Genesis 3.16, it talks about the curse of the various parties responsible. And then in 3.16 it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. I always find it funny when I ask, again, in premarital counseling, I ask the fiancé, the, the soon-to-be bride, what do you think he means by that? Some of the times they answer, well, maybe it's just a desire, like they want, they want to be with you, like his desire is for you, like he just wants to be with you. And I'm like, that is so nice and so wrong at the same time. I said the text in Genesis 4 gives clarity that the desire for you, the same exact word, almost same exact sentence is used of Cain, God talking to Cain. He says, listen, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Let me ask you, is that a good picture or a bad picture if sin is crouching at your door, ready to get you? Is that, oh, so there you are. I'm so happy to see you. No, it's, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. That's what it says. That's the same word. And then it says to Cain, same exact thing that he says to Adam. It says, you shall rule, or he shall rule over you. He says to Cain, you must rule over it. Same exact phrase. Sin's desire is for you, you must rule over it. That's what it says. So here's what it's saying. Instead of ruling together, again, remember Genesis 1, both of you have dominion. Instead of ruling together, God says, now you're going to rule against each other. You're going to rule and turn against one another constantly. So what changed was not the roles, but the distortion of them. They're now distorted. So women do not want to submit to men. They want to control them. Men want to abuse authority and lord it over them harshly. Is that not what you see in society all over the world? Let me just remind you, the curse is alive and well. It's doing fine. We see it all over the place. That's exactly what God said would happen. And that's what we see. And let's be honest, all of us, that's in us. Men, that's in you to want to rule harshly and to abuse authority. Ladies, in you is not wanting to be ruled and instead wanting to control. It's in us by birth. But here's the question. What is the solution? Because again, how do you deal with this? Well, the solution most marvelously is the thing we've been talking about. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is new life in Him. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, no one will change. Apart from the Spirit of God coming into you in power, you will not change. You will live out. And let's be honest, we all live out the very thing that we don't want to do in our flesh, in our marriages. We do not walk by the Spirit, as Jasper was reminding us. We need to let the Spirit have control. Let's be honest, we like control. So we still have to affirm, even in the new covenant, the new life in Christ, every single person is equal, everybody has dignity, worth, and honor, and every single believer, no matter man, woman, child, whoever believes, is inheriting salvation and will see Christ in glory. We affirm that. Woohoo! That's good. Yet we still have to affirm that there is distinction 
in roles. Again, the Spirit frees us from distortion, but not original intention of roles. And none of the reasons that the Bible gives for submission are based in anything of culture. They're all based in creation. So we cannot just throw it away. But let's be honest. Still in our day, we know that the cultural pressure to remove this point and the ramifications of what it means is only going to grow stronger. Culture wants you to remove it, get rid of this. In fact, some of you perhaps aren't even listening anymore because you just don't want to hear this. But that's the thing. You and I can only do this by the Spirit. And we needed to see all of that before we even got into our text. Okay? Because it is by the Spirit of God that we are able to do this as both wives and husbands to live in harmony and purity. So wives, let me challenge you. Your heart is going to react to this passage. Your heart is going to react to this passage. Husbands, your heart is also going to react to this passage. Just right at the beginning, that we need to let the Spirit of God use His Word, not hinder Him. So with that in mind, I want to pray before we look at Ephesians 5 again. Lord Jesus, I pray for our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would submit to what You'd have for us. Lord, give us strength to endure it. But Lord, also humble us before You, both husbands and wives. Lord, humble us, I pray. Amen. So let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25. It says this, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I want to give you a context again, because as Jasper shared last week, the main thing we have to see is that this is evidence of the Spirit of God filling you. So his challenge last week was let the Spirit of God fill you, and then the evidence of that reality is all of the different things that you see from 19 through pretty much the rest of the book. So it says addressing one another in verse 19 in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's interesting to note that verse 22, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. There is no verb in that passage. It says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. There is no submit there. Because it's flowing right out of 21, right into 22. You want to know what submission looks like in marriage for wives? Submit to your husband. You want to know what submission looks like for you men to your wives? Love her as Christ loves the church. We'll look at that next week. That's what mutual submission looks like. It's equal submission, mutual but not exactly the same submission. That's where I think egalitarians get it wrong. They take this passage and say, no, it's absolutely the same. Same submission all the way across. No, it's, it's not. And this isn't the only passage that deals with this topic. In every address to wives in the New Testament, it always says, submit to your husband. It does not say, husbands, submit to your wives. It says, love her, honor her, cherish her. All of the things that men stink at doing, it tells you to do. Isn't that amazing? God knows us. He knows exactly what we need to be doing. 
And I want us to see that because before we look at this word submit, we have to understand that this is something that we're all going to be doing. We mutually submit. But wives, submit to your husbands. So what does the word submit mean? It simply means to place oneself under. That's it. So husbands, you put yourself under Christ by loving your wife. Wives, you submit to Christ by putting yourself under your husband. You submit by submitting. That's what he's saying. It is a humble recognition of the divine ordering of society. Now note, this is not women submit to men. Not women submit to men. It is wives submit to husbands. So that means my wife will never submit to you because she submits to me. You have no right to tell my wife to do something or not do something without going through me. I am hers and she is mine. So this is not a woman is approached by a man and he has authority over her. It is, no, if she is married, you had better believe that somewhere in the area there is a husband sniffing around to see if there's any evil men trying to get at his wife. And I hope that is true. Ladies, let me also warn you. If your husband is not a leader, you will be tempted to find leadership in another man. You will be tempted to find Submission and love from another man because you are not receiving it from your husband. I think of one time, Callie and I ran into this idea of a husband submitting to a wife and she's mine and not anybody else's. There were two evil, very evil men. They, they didn't look evil, but I was watching them. They were very nice, I'm sure, but they looked at my wife. They were walking across a crosswalk and my wife's in the van at a stoplight and they look at her and they go, Wave at her. I am in the car behind her. I rolled down my window, and I looked out the window, and I go, Hey, that is my wife! And I'm just staring at them, and they look at me like... I tell you, I'm glad that light turned green, because there was going to be some... Seriously, and it was one of those times, you know, like in a movie where there's like this thought process and you're looking and all of a sudden like lightning came down from heaven and destroyed them. The earth opened up and they went down. And then the guy behind me beeps and I'm like, oh, it's a green light. Okay, yeah, I gotta go. Okay, sorry. That's honestly how it felt. I was like, oh, everything inside of me. But I think that's, that is something, men, that we need to be mindful of. Is that we need to cherish our wife and not look to master Rule over anything else or anyone else. How, how dare we? But it's also the next thing he says. Notice it says, submit to your own husbands. And then it adds this little phrase that is so hard. It says, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. And I'm going to talk about premarital counseling a lot because that's really where we're trying to flesh these things out. But I ask them, I say, are you sure? Are you sure you want to marry this person? Are you sure you want to marry this person? You're not married right now. You don't have to be married to this person. And I look at her and I say, do you believe that you can submit to this man without reservation? Do you believe that? Because you're not married yet. When you get married, 
and you claim to follow Christ, the expectation is you cannot ignore this because to ignore it is to ignore God. You don't have to go into it right now. You don't have to. There's an out. Just say no. No, thank you. But if you do, this is what's going to happen. It's shocking for the ladies to think that way. But that's exactly what the Bible says. You submit to them as to the Lord. Why? Why? Because once you choose to marry this man, God is going to hold you accountable to do it. God is going to hold you accountable to do it. And let's be honest, there's a danger where we promote submission only as the husband proves worthy of submitting to. I'll submit to him if I feel like we agree on what to do. I'll submit to him if I think at least he heard me and understood my opinion. Or I'll, maybe I'll submit to him if it doesn't interfere with what I believe maybe God has for me or my goals and my giftings. I read a blog of a woman advising another woman on submission, and it was called, I love it, Why I Love Submitting to My Husband. I thought, this is going to be good. It, didn't, it did not disappoint She said, why I love, I have to do a weird voice with this because this is just how I believe she talks. (laughs) Why I love submitting to my husband. She goes, because of the part that says, drum roll please, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So yes, yes I love submitting to my husband. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to be a partner, a helper, a companion to someone who loves me like that. Someone who puts me before himself, someone who cherishes me, values my opinion, loves me for me. Someone who would never purposefully do anything to hurt me, but everything to help me. (sighs) And she says, and when you think about it like that, submitting doesn't sound so much like submitting after all. To me, it sounds like a blessing to be able to love and respect and support and trust and encourage someone who's committed to looking out for my best interests, my family's best interests, and ultimately giving everything for me. And here's the thing, she, and just in case it was ridiculous now, she has pictures of their wedding day, they're smiling, they're holding each other, preciously looking into each other's eyes. I thought to myself, you know what, I would love to see a picture when you've been running around, lady, all day, all over the place, maybe you had to get the kids everywhere on the known earth with a half a day of school that you didn't know about, and you're now messing up your errands, moves your workout at the gym. You don't have that anymore. Now you have a massive headache and your husband walks in the door and says, honey, you know what? I had a long day. I think I'm going to sit on a couch. Take a picture of the next 10 minutes of your conversation and post that one on why I love submitting to my husband. Because I tell you what, princess, that doesn't sound like anybody else's husband. Some of you ladies are thinking my husband's lazy. All he wants to do is watch ESPN. I can't trust him with my finances. He buys whatever he wants. I can't buy a thing. He lets the kids do anything they want, practically ignores them while I'm the evil mama trying to bring structure to this massive chaos. And you know what? I don't even know if my husband is a Christian. I don't even know it. So he doesn't even care to follow the commands of God. And yet it says this, as to the Lord. And here's what God is showing us. He's saying, I'm asking you to submit to your husband because you know me. You know me. Would you follow me if you did not agree with me? Would you trust me if you feel like I didn't hear your opinion? Is God worthy of trusting and obeying? Yes. So he says, do it unto the Lord, knowing that your work and labor in the Lord is never 
in vain. And I say, that is so hard. Because the curse is still alive. And doing well on both ends. And so you and I need the Spirit of God. And the command is clear. But then Paul looks at why is submission necessary. In verse 23, he gives the reason for submission. He says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its Savior. And this is what he's hinting at, and he'll say next week as we look at the next part in Ephesians 5, he says, marriage roles evidence to the world the relationship of Christ and the church. You see that? Christ is the head of the church. Husband, head of the wife. So you have Christ and husband, church and wife. We'll talk about this later, but that's what it is. It's a picture of that relationship. But here's the question. What does it mean by head? Very simply, it means he has authority. Again, other Christians would reinterpret this word. They make it sound like it's source So basically, come from. That idea of the man came first and the woman came from him. He is simply the source of the woman. They don't want to deal with authority. That's it. It just means source. But here's the question. Does Ephesians talk about Jesus being the head of anything? Yes. Yes, it does. And does it mean authority? Yes. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Right here in verse 19 through 23. He says this, talking about a prayer. He says, I want you to know these things, and I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is the same word he talks about later. His headship has everything to do with authority. He's head over all things, and God gave him his head over all things to the church. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's the God that we have. That's the Jesus that we serve. He's full of power and authority. I think that is so clear. And then Ephesians 4.15, it says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then it says, from whom, so from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But wait a minute, that sounds like source, doesn't it? Oh man, that's a problem. Oh, but it's not, because look at verse 9. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. And then it says, he who descended is the one who what? Also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So it is in his authoritative state that Jesus gave gifts to people. And since he's the source of those gifts, because of his authority, he gives you these gifts. Use them. Use them for his glory. His authority earned him. Now, yes, it talks about providing and protecting, but it does not remove his headship, his authority. His provision and love does not remove authority. You have to note that. 
Because that is exactly, men, how you are to leave your, lead your wife. You are to lead her from a position of authority for the purpose of provision and love. That's what you do. So Christ's headship expresses care as well as control, responsibility as well as rule, and love as well as being the Lord. Now let me clarify, you are not the Savior of his body. He is. And so when you mess that one up, you're messing with his body, and he himself is the Savior. And so that is very responsible. So your wife is yours because Christ gave her to you. But we'll save the example of Christ for the husband next week. The last verse revisits this command and clarifies for us the extent of her submission. How much do I need to submit? Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the key part in this verse is, what in the world does he mean by in everything? Well, I looked up the word in everything, and it's very safe to say that it means in everything. It means every circumstance, every situation, every place you are. And it's general because it's supposed to mean in everything. Because let's be honest, we start asking what if questions. Well, what about? What about? What about? And here's the question I have to ask is how does the church submit to Christ? Is the church allowed to say, I will submit to Christ as long as he doesn't inconvenience me. I will submit to Christ as long as he doesn't hinder my plans, my goals, and my desires. In other words, is there anything that you would say, I cannot trust Christ to care for me? Again, it's to the Lord. Now I know the question we're going to ask is, really, everything? What about abuse? What about abuse? Well, let me tell you, first and foremost, we stand against abuse. Stand against it. If it is happening, and you know it is happening to someone, you need to tell people. We're not hiding this. This is serious. But here's also something very true. Is we need to be careful, wives, that we are not provoking one another to anger. We're not provoking each other to anger. I saw a study on abusive homes between a husband and wife And as often as a man will try to dominate a woman with strength, a woman will try to control a man with shame. Both of them are there. Ladies, you know how to push the buttons of your man. Men, you know that many times your wife can beat you in a verbal battle and make you feel this big. And many of the times, both of us reject humility And men want to use their strength physically to win back respect. And women will continue in verbal shaming. It is typically both. But there are situations where it's unprovoked. And let me tell you, you have full right to ask for help. It is not unsubmissive to look for help. It is not unsubmissive to call the police. It's not unsubmissive to do that. The police should not be your only help also. The church should also be there helping and walking you through everything, no matter if it goes legal, whatever, into battles, whatever it is. The church should be there. 
So again, if you know of anybody who is being abused, tell us. But let's be honest. Our culture would stop at that point and say, see, I told you, that's why we shouldn't submit to our husbands. See, I told you, because it's abused. I told you. That's the problem, is that we're always trying to get out of the reason to submit. And I would say there's two challenges to us. One of them is there are people with very unsubmissive hearts. And those hearts need to be changed by the Spirit because in everything means, listen, there are areas that you know, you know you do not want to submit to. And it's going to hurt your pride to give up control in that area. So let me ask this, ladies. Do you submit even if you know your husband is wrong? And when it's found out that he is wrong, do you gloat? Do you have a smug response to him? Is there any area of your life that you do not want your husband's input, advice, or even presence? And you've made it very clear that he is not to do anything in that area because that is your thing. That is against in everything. When your husband makes changes to your plans and you don't like it or it goes against something you already said you were going to do and it ruins your day, how do you respond? And again, it's not just your words, it's your tone. In other words, what is your heart in that moment? Now, can you not see that this is only going to be done by the power of the Spirit of God? Because you put anyone in these situations and they're not going to react by the Spirit. They're going to react by the flesh. We're going to respond, and we do respond we ways that are against Scripture. Because we don't like it. Maybe another reason that we wouldn't want to submit is because we're afraid of what this actually means. You would say, it's hard for me to see that it is good. That's like every of the people I talk to in premarital. I don't see this as good. In premarital counseling, that doesn't make sense to me. That's going to make me feel weak. Can I tell you something? We have been convinced by the world of what it means to be strong. We have been convinced by the world what it means to be strong. We have been conditioned not to see this command as glorious. It is only a hindrance. That is of the devil. And the world, as I said before, they are trying to empower women. But we looked at this idea of how, how. And this is their message. Wife, you are the victim and you need to have all his rights to be his equal. In other words, to put it bluntly, women are taught to be imitation men. That's what they're taught to be, imitation men. Their answer to women is be strong like a man. Do what a man can do and then you will be equal. Literally, be a man, woman, doesn't make sense. You see it all over the media. All over the media. I'm not going to ruin Endgame. I'm just going to do one scene for you. Okay? Everybody okay with this? It was on the trailer. If you missed it, it's... Okay, anyways, I'm going to do it. So Thor is standing there. Captain Marvel is right in front of him. He walks up to her. He holds out his hand like this. Stormbringer comes flying to his hand and goes, right past her head. Her hair goes, This is his massive axe that comes flying past her head. He looks her up and down like this, and she goes like this. And he looks to the rest of the Avengers, and he goes, I like this one. You know what that means? She has to be stern and manly in order for me to respect her as a woman. That's stupid. That is absolutely stupid. That has nothing to do with womanhood and manhood. 
That's what the world is telling you is strength. That is absolutely crap. You know why? Because here's the problem. This advice is coming from people who are described in Ephesians 4 as, listen, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that's the advice they're giving you. That is not the way that we have learned Christ, church. That is not the way we've learned Christ. And so if we're taking our cues from what a strong woman looks like from the world, it's terrible. Let's think of the one who gives you life and true joy has to say to you. Let's see, let's see what Christ has to say. We know Proverbs 31, 25. Some of us do. It says this, but we know Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, woman, that's what I want to be. You say strength, listen to this. It says strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. Why does she laugh at the time to come? Is it because her biceps are huge? Is it because she's got a great career and finances all in order? Is that the reason why? No, it is because God is her confidence. It says a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She laughs at things to come because God is her confidence. The same idea is in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You go, gentle and quiet spirit. I ask again, what do you think that means? They say, well, that means I need to be quiet. No, it means that you have quiet confidence in God, that you're not easily frazzled. It's the same person who's laughing at things to come. You have confidence in God, and that, he says, is very precious in God's sight. There is very little things that God said is very precious in his sight, and this is one of them, ladies, a gentle and quiet spirit. And you say, well, my husband's not a Christian. Well, that's who he's writing to. It says, listen, ladies, even if some of your husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, it is for the sake of the gospel. It is for his soul that you submit. John Piper once commented, I love strong women. It's a great statement. But people were confused. They're like, what do you mean by a strong woman? He says this, He says, I mean a woman who can lose a child. A woman who can lose a husband. A woman who can lose her health. Face a family crisis. See the world becoming anti-Christian all around her and wonder about raising children in this world. I'm talking about women who go to a dangerous place on the mission field, who return good for evil over and over and over again. Women who get up a thousand times with a sick or disabled child at nighttime exhausted. And all of it in the strength that God supplies because God is her hope. God is her rock. He says, that is what I mean by a strong woman. And let me tell you, church, that is a woman. Because she knows her feminine identity in Christ in such a deep and powerful way that she knows she's man's equal in the kingdom of God. She knows she's man's equal in the sight of God and in the inheritance of joy. But because of that, she's poised and free to affirm the manhood of her husband and come alongside him and help him in every way she can for the sake of God's kingdom. And evidencing that 
is more glorious than all the lies of the world. That is beautiful. That is strength. So in your submission, ladies, you are clearly, clearly testifying to the gospel. And the world hates it. Yet the challenge is be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now as I close, I have to ask us some questions because we dealt with both sides a little bit. But wives, let me ask this. How has your heart changed towards this command of submission? Has it changed at all? Are you still bristling about submission and trying to justify what the Spirit wants to do in your heart and life? Wives, have you been displaying a heart of submission to your husband? If not, what do you need to repent to him today? Husbands, how have you been displaying the headship of Christ to your wife Are you wrestling over failures to show godly leadership to your wife? Are you feeling shamed because of that? In what ways have you been dismissive with your responsibilities as the head of your home? What do you need to repent of to her today? Let me challenge you. Many of you are going to have to pray together today. I challenge you to pray together. I challenge you to go over these questions and confess to one another these things. Maybe you need to bring your kids in. Maybe you need to say to your kids, listen, mommy and daddy have not been doing this very well and the Spirit of God has been convicting us. Will you please forgive us? We have not been evidencing to you because we all have seen submission, whether good or evil, haven't we? We all have grown up in a family. Husbands, I am asking you to lead in this. I'm asking you to have these conversations. I'm asking you to be first to humble yourself, to first to pray and confess And let me remind you that God is for you in this. This is his design. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and God by his grace will fully forgive you in Christ. He will. And a reminder to all of us that we need to rely on the spirit of God to make this happen. So let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for our hearts, Lord, as we challenged or we're challenged with your word, Lord, I know I know that there is wrestling, Lord. There's wrestling in my heart. God, I pray that you would evidence in each one of us your spirit. Lord, I know that if we don't have your spirit, we will evidence the contrary. We could think that we have things okay. My husband and I, we have things worked out. We have things understood. We're okay. We're okay. God, if we don't, if we don't seek you, We're deceiving ourselves. Lord, I also know the promise that you are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think because your power is mighty within us. And you are the one who will receive the glory. You are the one who deserves the glory, not only now, Lord, but throughout all generations. So, Lord, I pray that for the sake of your people, for the sake of this culture, for the sake of kids, Lord, for families, I pray that you would work in our hearts. God, we need you. We need one another. Lord, may we not feel like we're doing this alone. We love you, Jesus.